So you've heard this passage from, from 1 Peter, uh, where among other things, as Peter talks about baptism and about suffering, what it looks like to be brought into uh, the people of God, uh, he mentions the time of Noah. Uh, he mentions how baptism itself prefigures, or the, the flood itself as it washes wickedness from the face of the earth, prefigures baptism uh, that washes and cleanses us. Um, but he also mentions that Jesus uh, goes to those who were in prison, uh, who, who died in the flood, and preaches to them that Jesus cares for them. And I also want to read one more passage today from Revelation chapter 1. Uh, as this is right as John, who, who writes Revelation, uh, meets, uh, meets Jesus in his vision um, at the beginning of the book. So this is what he says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see I'm alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I have the keys of death and of Hades. This too is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You pray with me and for me now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So over the last several weeks and for the next several weeks, we've been preaching through, talking through the Apostles' Creed. And I want to do this for a few reasons. One, because we say it almost every week in worship, and I want you to know how densely packed it is with meaning. As we confess our faith together week to week, I want you to remember the full depth of our faith. That it's not just these, these simple words that are fairly easy to remember. Our kids on Wednesday nights are memorizing uh, the Apostles' Creed, among the other things that they're doing uh, in their Wednesday night programming right now. So if, if our six-year-olds can learn it, we can all learn it, right? Um, but also because though the words are simple, they are just full, saturated with meaning. The meaning is really dense as we say these things phrase by phrase. Already we've talked about how God the Father Almighty in creating the universe shows us His goodness and His grace, that His very nature is to give life and to be creative and to make things that are beautiful. And then we've, we've talked about how Jesus, when we mess up everything in the world that is good and beautiful and glorious, comes to save us. Uh, and Jesus comes as God Himself uh, who has become man. He has two natures. Uh, he's both Jesus Christ, uh, who's born of Mary, but he is also the Lord who's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he enters into a very particular story with the people of Israel. To give Jesus the title of Christ is to place him as an heir of David, who was king of Israel, who became the king of the nation that was led out of Egypt by Moses uh, after they had received a promise from Abraham long before. To call Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, is to remember that Jesus is a part of a very particular story about how God is saving the world. So we've talked about the character and the nature of Jesus. We, we sang Christmas hymns a couple of weeks ago, uh, Christmas carols to celebrate that Jesus has been born into our midst. Uh, last week we celebrated or acknowledged uh, the crucifixion of Jesus that 
Christ, when he is lifted up, draws all people to himself. And the week before that, we talked even about Jesus' suffering, that under Pontius Pilate, Jesus was tortured. He was beaten and whipped and treated terribly and mocked. And how when we need to know, or we feel like we need to know, why are we experiencing the things that we're going through? If we've been faithful to Jesus, if we've done the things that, we've, that he has asked us to do, why do we experience suffering? The best way to begin to find an answer to that question is to ask, why did Jesus, who is perfectly faithful to the Father at every step, always beloved by the Father, the Father was well pleased with him, why did Jesus suffer? And then last week, as I said, we talked about the cross. We talked about how Jesus, very God in the flesh, the immortal God, dies. And the cosmic implications of this is he offers his own life as a sacrifice for our salvation. And this week, we get to a phrase that might be unfamiliar to some of you. And you might wonder why we haven't been saying it for all of the time that you've been Methodist and why is the preacher introducing it now? What happened? So I'll give you a little bit of history today. I don't always do a lot of history, but a little bit of history. I'll try not to bore you too much. Uh, when the Revolutionary War ended uh, and the colonies won, the, the priests that were Methodist priests in the United States were also agents of the crown. They were members of the Church of England uh, because Methodists were generally Anglicans. And so the colonists didn't really want Anglican priests hanging out in the colonies after we had kicked out the king. So uh, John Wesley, who was the leader of the Methodists in England, had to operate pretty quickly to get things together, and he took the Book of Common Prayer that was the Anglican Book of Worship, and he put together something called the Sunday Service. It had orders of morning and evening prayer. It had other instructions for worship. It had the Apostles' Creed in it, uh, as we said it today. Um, and he sent it over uh, in, um, in 1784. And then in 1786, they print a second edition. And this phrase, he descended into hell, is the first phrase on, on another page. And it seems to have been an editorial oversight that it gets dropped off in the baptismal liturgy. Uh, but it's still in other places in the Sunday service, in morning and evening prayer. It's still there. There wasn't any decision to change it. It just seems to be an editorial problem. Well, then in the next edition of the Sunday service, they stopped printing Monday morning and evening prayer. They just used the baptismal liturgy and had simpler instructions for worship. So the only creed that was there was the one that had dropped out this phrase. And so uh, since 1792 until the 1960s, nobody paid much attention to it. 160 years, uh, no one paid much attention to it. And then in the 1960s, a lot of different denominations started having conversations about how we could be as united as possible in our worship, particularly around sac uh, sacraments of baptism and communion. And one of the things that they talked about was like, well, Methodists should say the creed like everybody else says the creed. So we put it back in our baptismal liturgy, uh, so we say it that way when we're baptizing somebody. But most churches, because it's easy to learn, and we've been saying it for our whole lives, right? It, it hangs us up if we say it differently. And so it's hard to make the shift. So since 1792, Methodists have been saying it this way. We've been leaving out something that teaches us and reminds us about the work of Jesus. So the phrase is, he descended into hell 
or he descended to the dead. You might be thinking, Chad, why are there different options about what we say? Well, it's a translation problem, but the idea is not ultimately the place. It is that Jesus goes to those who have died. What does Jesus do in the time between his crucifixion and his resurrection? He goes to where everyone who dies goes. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the the cosmology of hell. There are a lot of different uh, theories about this, but we don't have time for that today. Uh, And I don't have definitive solutions for you anyway, so if you want to speculate about that sometime, come by the office. We'll talk about it as much as you want. But the idea is not that Jesus goes to suffer more, but that Jesus is on a mission to people who have died before his death that he can reclaim them and bring them with him in glory to God the Father. That's the work that he is doing. So we're not going to talk about the layers and whatever else, but the basic idea is that when Jesus dies, he goes to those who are dead, and that he is not there in suffering, he is there in mission. This is a key movement in Jesus' work of salvation. Because this is the place where he begins to win the victory. You might think it starts with the resurrection, but it actually starts here. One of my church history professors when I was in seminary called this Jesus' commando raid into hell. It's kind of an interesting idea. We don't think of Jesus as a commando, right? But if you want to take down the one who thinks they have dominion over death, over all who have died, then how do you get in without him noticing? You die. You go in just like everyone else, but you yourself have not been defeated. So how can God get into hell? How can Jesus get into hell and take back what is his own? He himself can die. And he can go in and he can claim the keys of hell and death. This is one of those passages that we read at funerals, uh, and it's one of those passages that is full of imagery. Y'all know that that sometimes they give out a key to the city to somebody who does something really good, right? Which isn't a literal key. There's no lock for it. But what it means is you're the king of the town, right? You can go wherever you want. You can do what you want. We all respect you so much. You've got a key to the city. When you were Some of you 15, some of you 16, when you started driving. Anybody start driving legally before 15? (laughs) Legally, there was some awkwardness from the choir. When you get the keys, you have your freedom. You have your ability to go wherever you want. You're the one who controls the car if you have the keys, right? If someone takes your keys, uh, whether you're incapacitated temporarily uh, or because you're, you're having more trouble getting around, it takes away your freedom, your autonomy, your control. So when Jesus looks at John and he says, I have the keys of hell and death, he's not saying something small. He's saying, when I died, I conquered Satan and all of his wiles, and I won back those who were mine. He cannot hold those who belong to me. I've got the keys. 
This, this phrase also refers to something that we call the, the harrowing of hell, which is not, not a word that we use a whole lot, but a harrowing is what a harrier does. Does anybody know what a harrier is? There's a plane called a harrier, but, but birds of prey are harriers. Owls and hawks and eagles. And the way that they pursue their prey is pretty intimidating, right? Claws out, big wingspans, chasing after with their really sharp eyes. They've got eyes like a hawk or they're eagle-eyed, right? They're very attentive. So that the animals that, that are, are brought up by speaking of the harrowing of hell are like falcons and hounds. Jesus is also called the hound of hell. He's going to track everywhere he needs to go until he finds those that are his. The reason this is important is that a lot of us, from time to time in our lives, feel like we have gotten so far from God that we cannot find our way back. That because of things that have happened to us, because of things that we have done, because of things that others have done to us, because of the circumstances and the situations of life, because of shame and guilt that we carry, whatever it is, we feel like God is far away and there is no way back. If you want a basic definition of what it means to be condemned, of what it means to be damned, this is it. To feel like God is so far away that you cannot find Him and to despair that you will never experience His presence, His love, His goodness again. All of us experience what it is for God to feel far away. That is a part of the life of faith where we see through a glass dimly and we do not know everything that there is to know. We don't yet see Jesus face to face and sometimes He feels far away. But there is a darker place that we can go to that says that God is never coming here. That God can never pull me out of this place I find myself in because I have gone too far. Maybe God can save everyone else, but God cannot save me. And when Jesus descends into hell, we learn that we are never beyond the reach of the God who wants to save us. That He will leave behind the flock of 99 so that He can come to find the one and He will track us down like a hound until He finds us so that He can take us back home with rejoicing. Jesus is coming looking for you. He is tracking you down, not to destroy you, but to save you. That's the God that we serve. Not just one who will suffer for you, not just one who will die for you, but one who comes seeking after you and all of his people so that he can claim you as, your, as his own. He can release you from the one who thinks he has dominion over you. And he can bring you with rejoicing into the home of God the Father. The psalmist says it this way. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. You surround me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. This is the message of the gospel. There's two different ways to read this psalm, by the way. There's, there's the way to read it as, as a comfort. Uh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it says. It's so high that I cannot attain it. But also, until you get to that point, you could read it as, I cannot escape you, O Lord. You ever had a friend who just suffocates you? Wherever you go, they're there. You turn around and they're there waiting for you again. If you don't have that friend, maybe you are that friend. I'm just kidding. But sometimes we don't want God to see what we're doing, right? Sometimes we would prefer for God to not know where we're going and what we're up to. And even then, we have not escaped Him. One of the most virtuous things about our military is that they do everything they can not to leave someone behind when they've been in battle. The reason it's one of the most virtuous things is that it exposes us to the very character of our God who will not leave us behind, who will come for us wherever we are and seek us out so that He can show us His love, so that He can share His life with us, so that we can know the glory of His beautiful light, so that we can know what it is to be healed by Him, so that we can live with fellowship, in fellowship with Him and all of His people for all of eternity. How far has Jesus gone for you? Everywhere. Even to hell, that He might save you. There is no place where you are in despair. You might feel like God is very far away, like He doesn't care for you, like He has not paid attention to you, like you have alienated yourself from Him, or like He has not been attentive to you in the ways that you want, and so you are pulling away from Him. But His grace will come for you. It will track you down. It will seek you out. It will hem you in. No matter how high or how low you go, you will find that God is there with you, seeking to save you, and to share His love with you. Will you pray with me?